Good morning. I was going to sing a song this morning, but for reasons that I can't reach the notes today, <laughs> I'm not going to. The song was going to be sweet, sweet anointing flowing down, flowing down like a mighty stream. It just flew out of my head. The last line says, pouring the oil and wine all over me. And that's what my prayer has been lately. That the oil and the wine of the Holy Spirit would flood me from top to bottom. For about two weeks, the Lord has been dealing with me about something, and I was set to address it last week in the message. And as Don said, we had just such a small crowd, it didn't make sense. And normally when that happens, or whatever reason that I don't use a message that I've prepared, it doesn't work the next week. It just doesn't work. The timing is off. The message is off. The Holy Spirit lays something different. But today, I'm going to use that message, and I feel like the Lord has a message in it that we need to hear. And I'm calling the message, Mercy or Sacrifice for the Harvest. And that might sound like an odd title, but that's what it is. And if you turn to Matthew chapter 12, we're going to be reading several passages of Scripture, and I'll give them to you as we come to them. Father, I just pray in your precious holy name for that anointing to flow this morning. Lord, we are earthen vessels. We are so flawed, Lord. It's amazing that you can even use the humans that you created in our fallen state. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, poured out like the oil and the wine upon us, Lord, we can be somewhat useful in your kingdom. And that's what I pray this morning, Lord, that you would ignite these words in our hearts and hit the mark with them, Lord Jesus, in ways that only the Holy Spirit can do. And we give you the praise. Amen. Matthew 12, 1 through 8. At that time, Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the corn, and his disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck the ears of the corn and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto him, Behold, thy disciples do that which is not lawful to do upon the Sabbath day. But he said unto them, Have you not read what David did, King David did, when he and those that were with him were hungry? And how he entered into the house of God, and he did eat the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them which were with him, but only for the priests. 
Or have you not read in the law how that on the Sabbath days the priest in the temple profaned the Sabbath and are blameless because they offered sacrifices on the Sabbath? But I say to you that in this place is one greater than the temple. But if you had not, if you had known what this means, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath day. And now if you would turn back a couple of pages to Matthew 9, verses 10 through 13. And it came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, here we go again, they said unto his disciples, why is your master eating with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, they that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what this means. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Two times within these two passages of scripture, very near each other, Jesus told these judgmental Pharisees the same thing. You need to learn what this means. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. Well, what did Jesus mean by this? <clears throat> he was quoting from two different Old Testament passages. First, Hosea chapter 6, verse 6 says, For I desired from you, I desired mercy from you and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. And then in 1 Samuel 15 and 22, and Samuel said to Saul, Does the Lord have as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. And Samuel went on and he said, because the, the sin, the rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness as is, is as iniquity and idolatry, because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he also hath rejected thee from being king, O Saul. This came with a big price. In a nutshell, you might say it like this. I desire acts of mercy from you towards me and towards others and obedience to my voice rather than offering vain sacrifices because you harbor the sins of iniquity and stubbornness and idolatry in your heart. God had established the covenant with Israel about keeping the Sabbath day. 
He established this covenant only with Israel. He said it would be a sign and a token to them. Neither God nor Jesus transferred this covenant, this ceremonial law, to the Gentiles, nor to the early church. He meant it for Israel only. So Jesus saw that these Pharisees were trying to set a trap for him by quoting the old law and charging the disciples with working on the Sabbath day because they plucked corn to eat when they were hungry. Jesus went on teaching them and saying that it is certainly lawful to do good things on the Sabbath, as David did, to feed his hungry fighting men so they could go forth in the battle. And even the priests should continue doing in the course of their work the things which are charged to them to do and happened every Sabbath. Jesus told them that the day does not have power over a man, but that he is Lord of the Sabbath, and therefore the day is subject to him. And then he called them on their merciless attitude. He said, if you had known what this meant, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, you wouldn't have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is the Lord, even of the Sabbath. I researched this, and the consensus of what Jesus was saying here was, as Lord, he can look beyond the ceremonial rules and regulations and look at the bigger picture, the picture of the condition of the hearts. He saw they had no mercy, only judgment by their holier-than-thou standards of sacrifice. But Jesus said, I came not for the well, but for the sick. Not for the righteous, but for the sinner like them. In James chapter 5, 1 through 6, there are two groups of people here being addressed. And we see another strong warning to the Pharisees specifically about the judgment that was about to befall wicked, rich men. Now stay with me here a minute. Notice the distinction of wicked in this, in this context. He told them what the fate would be of all their riches, meaning that all their storehouses of crops and flocks and grains and wine and oil and wardrobes, all that they had amassed to themselves, or as we might see it today, their mansions and their islands and their jets and all such trappings that we see of the rich and the famous. He told them that all of these riches, the things, would become corrupted. The things would become corrupted which means to become rotten, putrid, to fester, and to mortify. He told them that their gold and their silver would become cankered, which means rusted through, and that it would become a witness against them, 
the gold and the silver would become a witness against them and that it would eat their flesh like a fire. How their employees, listen to this, how their employees would cry out to the Lord because of the fraud that their masters forced them to commit. And James records that these employees' cries would be heard by the Lord of the Sabaoth, not the Sabbath, but the Sabaoth. The Sabaoth is interpreted heard by the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the host of the armies of heaven, the only one who has the power to rule the nations and to punish the wicked. He is the one who hears the employees' cries. He said of these wicked rich men, who were the Pharisees, the very elite of the land, you have condemned and killed the innocent and the just. But then James turns his attention to another group of people. And he says, oh, brethren in, Lord, in, brethren in the Lord, in verse 7, and he says, you brethren, you co-workers in the fields, be patient for the coming of the Lord. This is interpreted, this coming of the Lord. I looked this up in several um, uh, resources. The rapture of the church. You co-workers in the field, be patient for the coming of the Lord. For behold, it's the husbandman. It's the Lord himself who is waiting for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it, for the fruit, until he receives the early and the latter rain. The husbandman, Jesus himself, waits for the early and the latter rain. The commentary told me that the early rains come at seed time, or the time the seed is put into the ground. But the latter rain comes only at the harvest when the crops, the souls of men are ripe for the harvest. The message to these brethren is be patient. He's coming to get you. But in the meantime, we have some work to do while we're waiting on the harvest to become ripe after the latter rains come. He's telling us to be patient. Establish your hearts because the coming of the Lord is drawing near. In verse 11, he says, the Lord is full of pity, very pitiful, towards the harvest, towards the lost, and that he's full of tender mercies. See why he told the Pharisees, you should learn to have mercy instead of sacrifice. Immediately after this exhortation to the brethren, James goes on to say, 
here's what you do while you're waiting. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and pray over him, anointing him with oil. We did this just two weeks ago. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. And the Lord shall raise him up. And if he has committed any sins, they shall be forgiven him. We're talking about the harvest. We're talking about having mercy and patience for them. He says, confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. For the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. While we're waiting for this spiritual rain to fall upon this thirsty and dry and barren land that we see around us, we must have mercy for them. Mercy and long patience. Jesus was pitiful over the lost. He had pity over them. He said it twice. He must have meant what he said. The end of the wicked rich men. I believe with my whole heart it will happen now just as the Bible said it would to the Pharisees. People who have done wrong the Lord of the Sabaoth will deal with. And finally, we pray for the lost. I know that it's so easy to get so discouraged in praying. But the Bible tells us it's a promise <laughs> that the prayer of the righteous packs a wallop. It packs a punch of spiritual power with the Lord, and it avails much. I could be way off here, but I believe that at least a good portion of those early rains that we read about have come throughout different periods of history and in different locations. The revivals in the 1700s in Europe and in the US when Jonathan Edwards preached in Massachusetts and God supernaturally transformed believers and non-believers in the seed time reigns. Then again in the 40s and the 50s, we all remember closer to our lifetimes when we've read and seen when God used men and women who were unafraid to preach the gospel and to step out in faith believing that change would come through the power of the Holy Spirit. And these rains caused a desire in the hearts of men and women 
for God. But then we saw that the work of the enemy has since become so strong that it's attacked the church, even targeting the church, so that it's lulled people and then dulled that yearning for God. And it's allowed the creation of laws that support gross sin. But here's the thing. I don't think we've seen the latter range yet. We might have seen a dribble here and there. I don't know what they're going to look like. But I think that based on the depravity that we see around us, we can all believe and agree that it will be a never-before-seen act of the Almighty God. Oh, I believe that. That no man will be able to claim ownership of what's happening. No name will be associated with the latter reigns. It will be God's own hand. Jesus said you must learn what this means. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. We can't give him sacrifices of praise if we're hiding gunk and pride and junk and judgmentalism in our hearts. This is what the Lord's been dealing with me about. Excuse me. What if those that God chooses to use to bring about these latter rains don't look very much like you and me? What if the moves of God are different themselves than what we're used to seeing? What if the denominations from which these people that God uses are ones that we've rejected in the past and said that nothing good could come from them or even that they're heretics? I think it's a fair question. Will we accept them or will we stand in judgment like the critical Pharisees did? James said, don't look at the rich, wicked men because they're going to have their justice unless there is repentance. Think about it. That's what the latter rains are coming to do to bring repentance even to the wicked men. Oh, yes, we may not like to see that, like Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because he didn't want those reprobates to be saved. But the reins are to bring the lost to Christ at all costs, no matter what we see or what we think about them. And I do believe with my whole heart that we are on the brink. 
of seeing rains coming from God that we, we've never seen, we've never heard. The Bible says he's got things prepared for us that our feeble minds can't even comprehend. Why would the latter rains not be like that? Why would they be any different? I used to think that the latter rains would fall in the good times so that people would be anxious and ready and willing to accept. But now I think the opposite is true. For the worst conditions of the world requires the greater measure of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. An old, old song says, it's harvest time. The rain is falling and the grain is calling. Oh, do not wait, it's growing late. Behold, the fields are white. It's harvest time. I want to make sure that I have mercy in my heart for the harvest, not sacrifice, not criticism, not judgmentalism, so that that oil and the wine can be poured over us and we can be used for the glory, the glory of God. That's my message this morning. And if Doug and Don would pass out the communion implements, I'm gonna tell you a story if I can get through it. I told you this was burning in my heart and it has been because I feel it's very real to me. Because I was quick to judge some actions and some denominations and some leaders that I didn't think were right. And the Lord has checked me on this. They may not look like me. And that's okay if the Lord chooses them, isn't it? I want to tell you a story about a wedding that I saw last night. Don't ask me how or why this popped up in my, in my YouTube feed, but it did. This wedding was almost two hours long. It included five congregational songs of hymns with all the verses being sang. Yeah. Towards the end, after all the scripture had been read, <laughs> after three ministers separately spoke, after seven couples who were instrumental and important in this couple's life, and by the way, after they had prayed over them, the couple themselves were in their 60s, 
mid-60s at least. He had been married to his wife of 44 years when she passed away suddenly of cancer. Didn't know she had it. And the bride had never been married. She was 62 years old, she, 63, she'd never been married because she felt that the Lord had called her to a life of singleness to, to uh, work for him. She was a very successful writer, conference speaker. Her name is Nancy DeMoss, in case you are wondering his name. He's a big, big Christian book publisher, Robert Wolgamuth. So after all of these wedding things had happened, beautiful singing, pipe organ playing, Keith and Kristen Getty singing two beautiful songs. It's just the two of them standing on the, on the platform now with the pastor. They'd said their vows, they'd done all the things, and the pastor turned to the congregation and he said, When Jesus was hanging on the cross, he said, it's finished. Well, actually before he was hanging on the cross, in John 17, chapter, uh, chapter 17, verse four, Jesus' words to the disciples in a prayer to the Lord, he said, I've glorified thy name on the earth. I finished the work that you called me to do. And in verse 11, he says, And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world that you gave me. And I've come to thee, Holy Father, to ask you to keep through your own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are one. Then just a few chapters over, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he said those words again, it is finished. And you know what happened after Jesus said those words? He gave up the ghost, and the veil of the temple was rent in two. Yes, giving all access to come to the Father and to the Son. So the pastor turns to the bridegroom and he said, Robert, you've done all that's been required of you to win your bride. You may now remove the veil off of her face and take possession of what is yours. And you may kiss your bride. And to the bride, he said, and now Nancy, from this day forward, you'll have complete and total access 
to your bridegroom. No more veiling of yourself. No more caution. He's completely and totally yours. What a beautiful picture of Jesus. What he purchased on that cross. He paid all that was necessary to purchase all that the Father had given him, including the harvest to come. And that includes you and me. Don, would you stand and lead us in prayer for the taking of the bread, please? We recognize the body that was broken. Yes, Lord. And the pain that was endured, and the sacrifice that was made by the taking of this bread, Jesus. as you commanded, as you directed in remembrance of you. Amen. Amen. Doug, would you lead us in prayer for the taking of the symbol of the blood? Lord, we thank you for your blood that was spilled for our forgiveness, for our sins, and to purchase our lives. Yes. And we thank you, Lord, that we are now part of your kingdom. And we pray that you use us, Lord. Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for your blood. Amen. Amen. Oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that it is finished and that you did all that was necessary for our redemption. How we thank you, Father, for the blood and the body that was broken, O oh God. We thank you, Father, that you tore that veil apart that we can go directly to. Oh, the throne of God and the Son of God. At any time we can come. You invited us, Lord. We're so thankful. Now I would say if there is anyone listening who isn't sure that you would go in the rapture when Jesus said, I'm coming to get you. If you're not sure that your sins have forgiven, this is such a good time to say, oh God, forgive me of my sins. Wash me clean in your blood and let me be accessible to you. Let me have access to the bridegroom. In Jesus' name, oh, he will do it. He will accept that prayer if you pray it. Oh, Father, I thank you for every, every beautiful, precious soul that's here this morning. Oh, we're so thankful, Lord, that you've called us as a body, that you've called us together, oh, Lord, to work in tandem with the Holy Spirit. And Father, I pray for the outpouring of that oil and wine. Oh, for the, that anointing, that sweet, sweet anointing, Lord, to flow over us. 
and go with us from this place, oh God, in safety and in protection, Lord, because we dwell in the secret place of the Almighty God. We ask these things in your precious, precious name. Amen and amen.